Hello, welcome to episode 22 of the Therapy Tales podcast with me, Dawn Walton, the human therapist. And over in the corner... Jess, being bummer. <laughs> yes, we ended our last podcast with Jess explaining that when she went to a Christmas do with her friend, she uh, didn't want to tell everybody that she was a dog trainer, so instead she said she was an assistant. We don't want to be a manager, do we? Management sucks. <laughs> And I was uh, was questioning why you couldn't just be Jess, and then Jess said that that would what unemployed. I'm like, okay, so it's either I have a, a job or I'm unemployed. Yeah. What, what, how would you introduce yourself if you didn't want to, people to know that you were a therapist? Well, it depends on the event. If it was a Christmas party, I don't think anybody really know, wants to know anything about me. They just want a drink. So I'd be like, I'm done. So these people were all um, Ashley's works colleagues. I right. didn't explain that, did I? Um, so they all knew each other. So right. I was fresh meat. I would just say I'm Ashley's friend. Yeah, but you're spending the next couple of hours with these people. They're going to say, what do you do? Well, technically, but it's Christmas do, where they're going to get more and more drunk and nobody's going to care. And nobody's going to do funnier, stupid things, right? When you're talking about how you embalm bodies. <laughs> discuss with the yeah, I mean, people what, what happens. Game, but if you're doing it just because you're not, not okay saying who you are, then... It's not that I'm not okay with who I am. I just didn't want the questions about how do I train my random dog, <laughs> especially when they're drunk, right? Well, oh my god, my dog's doing this horrible behaviour. I hate Christmas parties so much. Do you? Really, really hate. It was a really posh place in Edinburgh and it was like the best Christmas party ever. Was it? Because I didn't know anybody. Right. And I got to be a mortuary assistant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're always, they're often in posh places. I mean, I've, I've always worked for large corporations, so. Oh, I've, I've never, so it was, it was always like, no. No, and, and the, the problem places. was, as I went through my career, I was a senior manager, right? So there are expectations of you as a senior manager. You have to go to Christmas parties, you have to do things like that, you have to be seen, and, and I hate things like that. So when you're self-employed for so long, you don't get to have Christmas parties. Which is fantastic. Sort of. Like you know, it's nice to get dressed up and go out. I mean, I haven't worn high heels oh, yes. for How long have you years. known me? Obviously not long enough. Know. It's nice to get dressed up and go out. Jesus. Okay. Like my idea of hell, getting dressed up and going out. Okay. Had to do it for an awards dinner. Like, I brought my friend with me. She was like super excited. Why she, is it your idea of hell? How does that make you feel, Don? Like, not myself. It's not. Good. But is it not fun to not be yourself for a bit? No, it's the wrong sort of not myself. Do you ever get drunk? I'm really rubbish at getting drunk. What does that mean? Um. If you're trying to get drunk so that you just lose all your inhibitions, I don't ever lose all my inhibitions. My brain is always like on alert, so I always stop before I get too drunk. But yeah, I just, I do, I drink. I'll, I'll go to an event like that and I'll drink and I'll probably drink more than I should do because I'd rather not be there and better to be as drunk as I can be to tolerate it. But So you drink for tolerance? Uh, yeah, I drink to escape. <laughs> I drink to get by. But yeah, no, it's it's horrible. And then when I when I became so I've been self-employed nine years, July, right? So this month is my nine-year anniversary of being a private therapist. Wow! I usually do a whole series of events over my uh, my the, every week in July. I'll do a different thing. At the, at the moment, my books are free. Two of my books are free on uh, Kindle. Until, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, so they're free from. You can do five How days. Uh, no, that one's with a publisher, so I can't make that free. I can't do anything with that because no. the publisher owns it. Um, it's the we're all screwed up and that's okay. And the first book, uh, Diary of a Teenage Mind Reader. Oh yes. Those are both self-published, so on Amazon you can make your books free for five days in every quarter. And so I usually do it in July. 
so those two are free until Thursday the 14th. Um, so download, download, download. Um, and if you listen to this afterwards, you'll just have to go buy them. They're not that expensive. Um, so I usually do books for free, I do some free therapy, and I do all sorts of special offers on my products and things like that. But this July has just been, you know, everything's been totally crazy. And went off the rails at the start of July, and I'm just about starting to get back on track. I feel like now. we should explain that one, because she doesn't really go off the rails. She just went dark for a whole day while she... Well, it's not, it, it is off the rails. So um, July the 2nd last year, my mother died. And we've been having, well, I've been having just like, it's been a crazy year. I thought I was going to walk away from my life all my past all my start stuff again, yeah. start again and actually the opposite have happened where I've gone in and worked through all sorts of stuff and best laid plans and covered it and yes so that all kind of meant that this year the 2nd of July was going to be really significant more than it probably would have been otherwise because it's the marker of a year of hell in many ways really good hell no the other <laughs> side is really good the hell bit was not really good and I, I haven't finished working through it yet um July is already a difficult month. On the 6th of July, my first child was born, and he was born at 26 weeks exactly, so he was massively premature. He lived for 30 days and died on the 5th, 5th of August. So 6th of July is a difficult date for me anyway, every year. He would have been 15 this year, so it's, it's a long time ago. Do you feel like a lot of bonding happened in the month that you had him? I, I deliberately, it did. So it was my first child. I'd never wanted kids. I thought I'd be a terrible mother and all the physical stuff, I mean it's just ridiculous, the physical stuff of being pregnant and so invasive and so, I mean my idea of absolute torment. So um, I ended up with preeclampsia which is high blood pressure and I always put it down to I'm mega stressed, every time you put me in hospital I'm going to be stressed, but actually it was more than that. Um, and so I was very aware that he was born, he was born in an emergency c-section, he was taken straight into intensive care. Um, that there was going to be a tricky to have a bond with him so I made sure that I visited him a few times a day and forced it and I was surprised when he died at how strong a bond there was I was like didn't expect that but it taught me I could be I could bond so when we had we already agreed um, just before he was born that whatever happened we'd have another kid because I always wanted two kids so that's why I have another kid um, but it's a it's a really tricky time because there was a whole you know each day it was like is he going to live is he going to die all this sort of stuff. So from the point of being a therapist, sorry, I didn't mean to brush over that so quickly. I, I appreciate that that's a really. That's all right. I'm also looking at the interaction between the dogs going on in the background. So we've got. Oh. Yes. Hi. <laughs> we've got Alfie in with us today. He's um, here for some training. And um, he's actually supposed to have no issues, but he's got some issues. Yes. <laughs> Hope his owner doesn't, doesn't listen. It's been excellent for me to tell her, though. I've been trying to figure out how to tell her. <laughs> I don't I'm think she'll listen. To the podcast. <laughs> um, hi, oh, Alfie. You've been very good in here, haven't you? Yes. Been very needy. Come on, off you get. So, um, how how is it being a therapist who has issues you're still working through? Because to me, like on the surface of that, that's almost like cheating. How can you fix others if you're still working on your own issues? Yes, and that, that is the problem, right? And uh, anybody who tries to help me always says, what would you tell a client? That's always the first go-to that people who because care we, about we me say. trust in your therapy. Yeah, yeah. And the, the problem is that, as you as you know from all our conversations, it's way more complex than that in my situation. And also, one of the things I always say is you can't help yourself. You need somebody to guide you. And it's very hard because of the complexity and how awkward I am to get somebody who can actually help me and get through all my barriers and 
provide support. So you're actually not like uh, broken either. Like I know that you think that you're worse than you are, but you function really, really well. Yeah, it, in your everyday. So if somebody was needing therapy, it would mean to me that they are unhappy and unable to function in everyday life. It would okay. affect their. So do you feel like your issues affect your everyday life? No, I don't think so. I think they affect my authenticity. That's for me. It's that authenticity. So this is related to the, the mortuary thing, then, right? So okay. what is true self? And you know, if you've escaped from it, if you put the mask on for so long, and not pretended to be somebody else, but lived as if you were okay, and then suddenly decided actually you're not. And so for a lot of people, that happens in their twenties, and then by the time they're thirty, they may be having family and a bit distracted, and by the time they're in their forties, they go, holy shit, I'm a mess. Well, I think one of the things that happens is, so so the reason that the mid-twenties is a kind of marker is because of brain development, right? So mid-twenties, our brains are fully developed. So very often, people who've had stuff happen in their childhood, their understanding falls into place, mid-twenties, early, th- kind of early thirties. So if somebody's going to have a nervous breakdown, it's usually around that age. Right. Um, where you just kind of go through everything and go, oh my God, I've just realised everything that happened. Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? And you kind of get lost in a maelstrom of it so um, then if that's ridden out if it wasn't such a big deal then you will um, when they have kids it becomes another milestone because it's like I would never do that to my kids or how could anybody treat a child that way or I'm a terrible parent and I'm letting my kids down so kids can create another wave so I've had people with things like driving phobias that they never had until they had the kids in the back of the car or fear of flying that they never had until they were on a flight with their kids. You know, it, it triggers a whole other... So it's been there? Yeah, it's been there all along, but it's been activated. Right, okay. So I always think of it like a, a giant rule book with all the rules written when you're growing up, but you might never turn to a particular page. The rule just sits there. But the problem is, <laughs> once you've turned to that page, you can't unsee it. So things that used to be okay stop being okay, and more and more things get kind of caught in it. Wow. So that, that's what tends to happen. So, so you tend to have those couple of markers. And then the other marker can be um, when kids have left home or when you've retired. And if your whole identity has been the work that you did and the job that you did. So this used to be my problem, right? I was very good at what I did. I was probably at one point one of the world's leading experts on call centers. I was traveling globally. I was doing my thing. And I had a good team that I worked with. And I was just really good at what I did. And my whole sense of self was because I was really good at what I did. And can you imagine if I'd had to go through a pandemic when I was still doing that job? That would have been just awful. But it was one of the hardest lessons for me when I became a full-time therapist because I learned my trade, right? I learned my trade by helping people. I, I, and, and has that helped you to help people? Yeah. It, well, for me, my journey is what makes me better at helping people. Is not because of what I've been through, but because of what I've learned from what I've been through and how I've overcome it and realize so it have you overcome it mostly there are still some issues a lot less issues since the last year in fairness um, and if I could just get past all the plot twists in my life then I might be able to get on an even but I am a bit more even you know I had I had kind of recovered and then I got another plot twist and I kind of fell off the edge again and then July happened and I fell off the edge again for a bit for that but I'm recovering quicker which I always say is a sign of progress. It's Resilience, not, right? Yeah, it's not that you're not affected by stuff, it's how quickly you come back to the present after you've been affected by stuff. So if we can circle back to 
the mask thing. Who are we really? Mm. I was uncomfortable, before, not uncomfortable, I was confused when you said just be Jess. So imagine the party and I'm just being Jess because all I am all the time is Jess with dogs. Mm, I know. So if you strip that away, what happens? Well, that's the question for you to be curious about, right? And that's what happened to me when I left the full-time job where I was successful. By the end of the job, I wasn't successful. I was being told I was going to be performance managed because I was in a job that I wasn't able to do using my skill set. So they put me in the wrong job that didn't use my skill set, got a new manager who then said, if you don't buck up your ideas, I'm going to poor performance manage you out of this company. So I've gone from pretty much straight top top marks in all my performance appraisals my whole life being promoted and promoted never done an interview since I was like 25 hadn't interviewed ever got promoted based on success and ended up in charge of training and quality for a 17,000 people global company because on based on merit now in a company where I'm a senior manager being told I have poor performance and I'm going to be actually managed out of the company based on that and going yeah who am I then and uh, having tried to look for other jobs, I was six years out of what I'd done before, so nobody would give me jobs because they're like, you're out you're out the market, you're not up to speed. So I'm like, who am I if I can't do any of that? Um, I'm suddenly not good at what I do. And then I went in to do the therapy job full time, which I'd never done before. With that, that was it was a real baptism of fire to kind of go, who am I? So What do you call that phase of your life where you're being really good at doing what you do? But not really knowing who you really are. Because I imagine there's a lot of people who go through their entire life like that. Blind ignorance, maybe? I don't know. You just don't, it doesn't matter, right? If nothing happens to make you think about it, and I think that's what the pandemic would have caused a shift in, because imagine if I'd stopped at the height of my career where my whole identity was I do this well and I have nothing to do. I'd have, I'd have just crumbled, right? I probably wouldn't because I don't, but you know. That, that would have been so for me when I wasn't having clients I was okay if I saw clients if I didn't have any clients I was not okay so you need to be needed I need to have uh, my sense of self-worth is very much based on what I can help others with that's good to know that though yeah it, 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 and I'm, I'm aware of that and I'm aware of it being a, probably a bit too much on that so I don't put that pressure on others too much. Occasionally I do. I get too close. But. <laughs> <laughs> so we were going to speak about lobsters. We were going to speak about lobsters. I don't know how we ended up on this subject. Mortuary. So um, I came across a bit of science Yep. that suggests that when we inject lobsters with serotonin, that it increases their uh, aggressive behaviours and makes them higher up in the hierarchy in the lobster world. Yes. And <laughs> so, um, just to recap for people who don't know about serotonin, serotonin is the hormone that makes us feel happy. It is. Happy drug. And it's released from the gut. And it's responsible and com- it's better when we're uh, regulated right yep. so good sleep patterns good eating patterns things like that um, I have so just a little bit of background 
when we talk about social hierarchy, we don't tend to speak about um, when humans, we don't tend to speak about hierarchy on a day-to-day basis, but no. definitely one exists. So we yes. have managers, and we have parents, and we have governments, and um, all the way down to the bottom. Yeah, and we have, in you know, we, effectively in the UK, we still have a lot of the class system um, in place. In other countries, you don't as much, but there is the Which UK. Which doesn't have that? Um, I don't think the Netherlands, I've not seen a class system in the Netherlands. It's a very non-hierarchical society. That's surely unusual. Yeah, I, I think maybe the, the UK swings quite strongly one way. It's very hierarchical. I can't think of a country that isn't, though. Like, the Netherlands, as you say, but that, I'm saying that's quite unusual. Like, yeah. China's definitely hierarchical. Africa yeah. is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say India was probably, from Probably, yeah, India, definitely. Um, probably Europe and America are striving to be more um, equal, but yeah. struggling with But, that. you know, I think there's hierarchical in terms of cultural hierarchy. I don't think, I think there's lots of companies that don't have the class system. There are going to be very few animals, mm. including humans, that live in groups that don't have a hierarchy. Yeah. For, for to stay out of chaos, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, even down to insects, actually. Yeah. Who have that really, really strict order. <laughs> I just say, anything that is a group you have to have some sort of sense of hierarchy yeah. for the group to function, otherwise it would be chaos. And lobsters don't live in groups, but they do get together for mating, and they do live in territories. Yeah. So, so they don't live in groups, but they get... They live in areas where the food is, so they're going to have hierarchy of uh, territory and okay. over, over food resources, right? Okay. Well, I suppose territory could be classes of resource also. Yeah. Just my area. So, yeah, they're, they're solitary. Huh. Not how, as in lobsters are, I'm just kind of mapping that onto the. Just other doing a matrix thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm doing it, you know, the kind of. Your eyes were doing it. Yeah, yeah. It's doing its thing. It's really funny, isn't it? So Don taught me this thing about eye, eyes, and um, when we look at certain areas, we're accessing parts of the brain for memory and for um, fiction and for. All sorts. So your, your face gives it away. And you said something uh, last time in our conversation, and um, your whole face disapproved, basically. <laughs> and then you said something else, and it all lit up. And it's so interesting, isn't it, to kind of. Well, that's what that's what people like um, Darren Brown do really well. They read faces. I love him. I think he's yeah. amazing. Although I wouldn't want to be his partner. I think he might be gay, though, so I couldn't be his partner. But... <laughs> I think he is, isn't he? I think he is. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway, so. Um, that's the point. Lobsters, Lobsters, when they're going to be fighting over uh, territory yes. or food, yes. or when they have to interact sexual, with each other, sexual partners, there has to be uh, one that's more dominant that's going to be um, coming out on top and getting access to the resources, right? Yeah. And it turns out that the higher, the the more high-ranking he is in yep. hierarchy, um, the more serotonin he has, which is quite unusual because we think of serotonin as being we do for happiness and in fact if you google serotonin and aggression it will tell you for humans most of the of the articles will tell you that serotonin um, and is inhibiting aggression yeah so what is going on 
So uh, serotonin is also kind of one of the main ingredients of antidepressants, obviously, because you know the kind so of low mood it lifts the mood. It's a mood lifter. And you probably come across them uh, as an SSRI. So um, they are about regulation of yeah. serotonin and in the form of um, fluoxetine. It's probably the most common one for that. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Um, so, so the thing that got me thinking was was non-dog related, and obviously you were thinking dog related. So I was thinking the hierarchy thing was the thing that interested me. So firstly, that serotonin was linked to something other than being happy was was interesting. That, that there's other ways of getting serotonin, and then that kind of sets a hierarchy. And then looking in humans, what that would mean, and actually, it kind of led me to that sense of achievement, which makes you happy, right? Sense of achievement and a achieving a hierarchy so I remember we got took out, taken over by a Dutch company and I just moved into a new role in charge of training and quality for our new blended organization and they were just doing the org charts and there were roles like um, there was obviously chief operating officer and then there were kind of other officer roles and there was no equivalent of an officer role for the role that I just moved into. So that meant that I was top of the hierarchy for that. But when they did the org chart, I wasn't given the officer title. And I remember sitting with my boss, and kind of, who was a Dutch guy, and going, but if I'm doing the same as all these other people who are my peers, why am I not getting the officer title? And he's like, what's it matter? I'm like, well, it matters to me because it's the way other people interact with me. They will interact with me differently. And they will see me differently. But he's like, no, they won't. It's fine. It doesn't matter. It's just a title. I'm like, it's not just a title. And I was really upset by it. But he absolutely, it wasn't, he was, he was actually a really nice guy and got on really well. He just didn't see the point. It just didn't matter to him. It was just, it was just words. But for me, my sense of achievement was being able to say, hey, I used to be on the phones and then I got promoted to a training manager job and I was responsible for globally for quality and training. You know, I, that was my, so I could see that would make me happy because I had a sense of achievement. So I could see that so I'm still making serotonin about being happy, an indirect route, but then maybe it isn't if it's not in lobsters. So um, I found some research that's um, going a bit further into this. Right. But before I talk about it, um, I have, I think, wrongly assumed for many years that testosterone was responsible for dogs acting in a sexy manner. Right. So if I can bring you back to the dog that we met the other night yep. that we made a podcast about, yeah. Earlier in the week, um, we I immediately knew that he was sexy. Yeah. That sounds terrible. <laughs> what I mean by that is he was displaying sexy behaviours. <laughs> oh my god. Um, so I I would have thought in the past that that's related to testosterone. So he's yep. got randomly by nature he's got high te- high levels of testosterone and therefore um, probably needs neutered when he's old enough because he's going to get himself in trouble. Yep. So he goes up to dogs and he nudges them with his nose. He wants to put his head over their back, he wants to mount them ultimately, but most dogs recognise what he's doing and will flounce him off. So they'll yeah. butt, butt their bum away and they'll um, get annoyed or growl at him or whatever. So, but now my thinking, and we're not supposed to talk about social order and social rank in dogs. In mythology we do, but in the dog world, in the lower levels of the dog world, <laughs> talking other about hierarchy. Of well, I'm talking about hierarchy. Yes, yeah, absolutely. We're trying to speak the talk. Yes. But disconnect to the the um, in the trenches. Yes, yes, what, what? Um, <laughs> People in the trenches wouldn't talk like that, by the way. They might have. 
<laughs> so um, they. I totally lost my train of thought. There, but, so <laughs> the the um, I I believe now that the, the owners, the guardians of the dog, are switching on the increase in serotonin by the way they act. So mm. they're acting the submissive, subordinate way, putting right. the dog on a, a throne, so to speak. And it's their behaviour that's causing. So we'll think about the monkeys again. So um, we were reading earlier that the monkeys, a high-ranking uh, monkey, will have increased serotonin um, when he's in amongst do- monkeys, not dogs, monkeys that are acting in a subordinate manner to him. Right. So allowing him to take that top rank. Yeah. Bringing in bananas or whatever, whatever they do in monkey land, right? But when monkey they take the, those um, submissive monkeys away and put the alpha in front of a mirror his serotonin levels dropped. Right. So, we know that in the wild, and with wild dogs, they're, they're not castrated. No. They're all, yeah, yeah. so it's nothing to do with their balls no. and their genitalia. No. Right? And also, there's a lot of females that we meet that are displaying masculine-like traits. Okay. I don't want to call it aggression, but there is a, a higher level of aggressive response, but I think the aggression is a learned behaviour from not getting their own way when they think they should get their own way because of how they've been made to believe. Diva behaviour. So I'm a queen, I've been told that by my underlings that I am have access to all the resources, I've access to food at all times, and as many toys as I want, I've access to the human attention, I've got much freedom as I want, I get to do what I want, nobody ever stops me from going up to dogs or running free, no. I don't have to come back. So all of those things and give the dog the idea of its hierarchy in the yeah. back, right? Yep. That then goes along with increasing serotonin. Yeah, so it seems. But if that dog was faced with dogs that didn't treat it that way, so if he was put into a wild pack of dogs that went, no, 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 there's another guy here that's in charge, you don't get to breed. Yeah. The serotonin levels will drop. So? As seen with the monkeys. Right. So in not even in a wild pack run, so when a dog turns up displaying that behaviour... I don't know how long serotonin levels will take to drop. And your runs. dog pack, because so technically these are not these are not long-term release things, these are immediate release. Okay. Right? Which also means... Physiology change, right? Half-life, uh, I don't know, I suppose I could find that out. Um. The physiology change, so that means that when a dog comes into your pack of dogs that goes, this is not okay behaviour amongst us. Within the space of one walk, the dog learns to change their behaviour. And their physiology changes from going for everybody to a submissive behaviour by their owners. Yes. So therefore, you could argue, based on this discussion, that that's a reduction in serotonin that's happened also. Perhaps. I'm not sure if it's that quick. Um, I'm trying to Google right now this is the half-life of uh, serotonin. Um, well, maybe just how quickly serotonin rises and drops. Well, that's what I mean by the half-life. Yes. But the, um, it takes a long time for serotonin to build up in the blood. So, um, sorry, if you're taking fluoxetine, for example. Um, or. But they have it already, right? So if a dog is coming in diva mode, uh-huh. For whatever, right? So let's take the gender away from it and just say it, it's a diva dog that thinks it's got the right to everything. And the right to resources. Yeah, so it's already got high levels of serotonin based on the science that we're talking about. So how quickly will it drop? I would say that there would be a change in it. Immediately. Immediately. 
and that maybe that is explaining some of the change in the behavior where a dog by the end is actually sticking quite close to its owners and demonstrating essentially submissive behavior by the end yeah which i've seen time and time again with there's, so many there's dogs a confusion in it as well as in why is this not working for me any, any yeah longer. So um, there's new research that's been done. This is when I was, because um, again, if you go and Google serotonin and aggression, there's um, the opposite happens, yes, yeah. that we're assuming. But we talked about that as in you, you find what you look for, right? Yeah. So there is some new research. Uh, Dr. Molly Crockett, so she's from Cambridge Behavioral Clinical Neuroscience Institute at Zurich. So she says, we've known for decades that serotonin plays a key role in aggression, but it's only very recently we've had the technology to look into the brain and examine how serotonin helps us regulate emotional impulse. Right. By combining long-term, sorry, by combining a long tradition of behavioral research with new technology, we're able to uncover a mechanism for how serotonin influences aggression. So they were talking about low serotonin made communication between specific brain regions of the emotional limbic system. Um, an amygdala and frontal lobes were weaker compared to present under normal levels of serotonin. The findings suggest when serotonin levels are low, it's more difficult for the prefrontal cortex to control emotional responses to anger. So it's more about um, it's anger. It's almost like a neurotransmitter. It's uh, uh, anger and emotional response, like aggression, um, is in, in, in unregulated. So yes. It's not that serotonin is. Um, so it, it's like it's a conductor. It's like serotonin acts as a conductor, and if it's too low, you don't have a conductor, so that it, there's no communication well, between the prefrontal cortex. Well, talk about weak communication. That's yeah, right. yeah. So a neurotransmitter slash conductor. So those individuals who were predisposed to aggression were the most sensitive to changes in serotonin depletion. So it's not just about not having it; it's about the fact that it's if it's low, high, low, high. Yeah. So the aggression isn't about serotonin. The serotonin uh, being up and down could inhibits or yeah, yeah, it doesn't inhibit it. So it's not stuck on its own basically yeah, yeah. and we kind of know that right but it's interesting for me because I've always taken um, it to be testosterone that was the, the hormone that was influencing the aggressive response rather than yeah absolutely and so I think, for, I think for, if we go back to dogs again which is quite a nice model to use if we have a, an owner that's um, convinced the dog that it's to take the control of resources let's say because it's a nice ecological yeah. perspective and we suddenly tell that dog off. So it's run across the park and it's going, I'm doing my own thing, you can't stop me, this is, I'm having a great time. Um, when the owner gets hold of it and tells it off, you don't tell off the queen, right? Yep. You don't tell off the queen. So when you are then um, having somebody tell you that's not correct behavior, they're wrong because you've clearly on the queen, right? So they're wrong. But that would cause the confusion, frustration, and maybe even some aggression coming through. Yeah, whereas when that happens... It's not consistent. There's not consistency there. You're not always the queen. Somebody's getting mad at me. Why are they getting mad at me? So, but when that happens, when they're faced with another queen, the serotonin drops, which means they can learn that lesson. Or the aggression comes in because they're going to go, oh, I'm going to have to fight for my top spot because clearly yeah. these people behind me have told me that I'm... Yeah. As we see in a lot of males. Yes. But then they, they learn really quickly. So I talk about um, subduing. So I don't need to castrate my males. I can subdue them, or subdue the what I thought was the testosterone, uh, by controlling resources, by showing them that they're not to pee every lamppost and not peacocking and displaying yep. behaviours of um, a high-ranking individual. Yeah. 
and that, and I've proved that because I've got a nice male, a dire yep. male um, sheriff who wouldn't say Buta Goose, but he's not fearful. No. Nope. He's just quite like. No, he's chill. Cool. Yeah, yeah. He's cool. So I think we can create a dog that comes out on top. I'm, I'm sexy. I'm going to have sex with everybody here. Hope nobody here hearing this in the coffee shop. <laughs> um, everybody seems concentrating on something else. <laughs> We're okay. And uh, you can do that by allowing. So uh, the experiment, I suppose, would be for me to have a dog that uh, I treat like everybody else treats. It's so hard for me yeah, to no, do. Yeah, no, that's just not going to work, <laughs> is it? So, um, so you just alluded to the thing that we we talked about, which is. Um, when they do experiments, you start off with what's called a hypothesis. So, I believe this to be the case. And so your experiment is to prove your hypothesis, or the null hypothesis in psychology, which is the opposite, always confuses me, but anyway. So, but basically you say, here's my idea. So my idea is serotonin relates to um, aggression. It's related to aggression more than testosterone is. This is my belief. I'm gonna do an experiment that proves my belief. Now, if your experiment proves you're wrong, then what it is is a failed experiment, it doesn't get documented, it doesn't get reported, and nothing gets done with it. If your experiment proves you're right, but it's really not very consistent, and it's kind of hard to say for sure, also, it's a failed experiment, nothing gets done, nothing gets reported. Um, It's only if it proves resoundingly that your hypothesis was right, that it will then get some... um, Recognition recognition and only then if you can get it published and you can get other people to see it which takes some time so what's really interesting is to go i'm wrong right for, for us it would be really interesting to go here's my hypothesis my hypothesis is wrong that's really interesting data for lots of people to say that serotonin is not linked to aggression or you know whatever but that data never gets seen and that's why so much science is, is questionable because it's based on what somebody decided to look at and doesn't take into account the whole world and the whole perspective. And, and so that's why I think during the pandemic everybody got caught up in believing they knew what they were talking about because they were seeing some numbers. But they were only seeing one set of numbers. Like, you know, that was you, absolutely hilarious yeah. how the people behaved. The you see this increase in, in COVID cases, but you weren't seeing, for example, that pneumonia cases went down to zero. You know, and pneumonia cases used to be really high. And then COVID cases went down to zero. Uh, COVID cases went up and pneumonia cases went down. And it's like, well, where did the pneumonia cases go down? And you could argue that people weren't mixing in the same way and such likes, but pneumonia well, is... Well, I first had experience of this, of, of a friend dying of COVID, and it was absolutely not COVID. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I had so a friend... She was nowhere near was COVID. I had a friend who was in the, her, the police and um, was manning the, the lines and they would be told every day how to record deaths in different ways. It was, you know... And why? Why, why did that happen? Um, I, I don't know. I, you know, it, it's, it's a, probably a political discussion that everybody has lots of opinions on, but it just, it was fascinating for me as a database person yeah. to observe the commentary that people would give you based on a very small sample of data. My dad was obsessed with the numbers every day, like how many people died worldwide. Lots of people got, yeah. yeah. And I was like, that's not, that's not real. Well, why? Because yeah. you, you're just convincing your subconscious to be terrified of going outside, right? Yeah, and it's it, it, so, it, it's, you know... This I is think what it was a giant experiment to see how we behaved. I think this would be an offline conversation that you and I should definitely have. Um, <laughs> Two conspiracy theorists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but you know, for, so for me, one of the frustrations when I did my masters in psychology was to realise that all the stuff that we're using, all the psychology papers that come from ages ago, by the way, were all 
biased in the first place oh, yeah, yeah. at some I mean, level. I, I, we're the same. I mean, we had to learn an experiment called the Miller experiment that was proved to be false about how RNA decided to come to life. Yep. Um, and we knew it was wrong. We had to learn it for an exam. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's like, no, we can't make life. Life cannot be made. No one knows where that spark is. But yeah, there was some experiment that put some matrices together that RNA just magically gelled together and life became. So you learn that. It, it, you know, what it does is it misses something. So there's a, there's a famous person called Amy Cuddy. And um, she talks about, she did a TED talk. And it's about power poses. And it's about how, you know, standing like that, I'm, I'm putting my arms up in a Y shape, right? Standing like that before you do a talk. Um, increases various good chemicals, makes you feel more confident and makes you better at doing the talk, right? And there's, there's, there's better physiology things like, you know, you're opening up your lungs, you're, this is a, an I'm safe state as opposed to closed in where I'm not safe. You know, there's lots of body language stuff. But basically, it's had millions of views. If you if you Google Amy Cuddy, um, power poses. You sent me it ages ago. I think yeah. you sent me it about five years ago. Like, yeah. So it's it's <laughs> like it's a, been a massive thing, and everybody and it's a gospel to everybody. But it, it the study that she did, she's a scientist. She did a study behind it. It's based on 29 people. 29 people, and actually, the the it wasn't even that all 29 people demonstrated change. And they did measure the right things, but it was 29 people, and it was just inconclusive. Um, it just makes sense to us in our heads, doesn't it? It does, and that's the thing. So, so we did it in our, in our, when we were looking at data and how it's, how it's put together. And I, I did a paper on it. And it doesn't mean that she's wrong, right? So the thing is, it doesn't mean that she's wrong. If it makes you feel good to stand in that pose, to open up your chest, to say, I feel powerful. And I, it's actually, there's a lot of value in that. Yeah. And if it works, so what? It doesn't matter that her experiment doesn't validate it or it's not strong enough. Somebody tried to replicate it, couldn't replicate the experiment to the same level, inevitably. So, so a lot of the scientific world is doing, certainly in psychology, they're trying to do open source, you know, put your results out there so other people can cut them in the way they want to cut them. That would be really useful. You know, move away from all this old-fashioned institutionalized reporting of it and things like that. But for the rest of us, you need to look at it at two things. Like that's, so this serotonin in lobsters, this is really interesting, right? It's really interesting because you and I both went, huh. So that we makes didn't even about talk about that. They injected the lobsters with serotonin. Yeah, you said that. Did I? Yeah. And did I? Yeah, yeah. Because no. I had in my head, like, how do you inject the lobster with serotonin? And, you know, did it hurt? I, I just got off on one when you were saying that. They can't hurt. They don't have the same pain receptors as us. Yeah, but you did talk They're about They're antipods. Yes. I was Googling something else and when I came across that. Yeah, you were. You, you had another article that you were... Oh, I was making the, the for the meme that we put together to, uh, about I was oh, looking for serotonin yeah, for things yeah. that were to put on the meme. Yes, because we were trying to look at the markers. There was a meme that went round about humans, serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine and endorphins, I think it was, wasn't it? And then uh, you wanted to do it for dogs, so we put together a meme for dogs. But, but you know, so, so you and I kind of go, oh, that's interesting. How does it fit into what we understand? How does it fit into scientifically what we understand, but also how does it fit into what we see in practice? And then do we need to change the way we view things or does it explain the way we do things? But I think other people might kind of go, oh, that's what the data says, then I must be wrong or I've been right all along. And that's not true. It's just one point of data. It's no use unless you do something with it. <laughs> like, what's it, so what? You know, what does it actually mean? Yeah, so I don't know how I came across the lobster thing, but I was Googling something. To there was something else. You sent me two links, and the first link was to do with... Hmm, no, the first link I was really struggling with, because it was a, an interview with somebody about emotions, 
It was emotions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which actually brings us on to the next subject, which is what we're going to talk about, which is emotions and, and um, personifying and anthropomorphizing and oh, yeah. all this sort of stuff. Hey, that was quite a good link. That was like we planned it or something. Uh, <laughs> nothing is planned. Relax, nothing is, planned. Nothing is under control. Never. Um, yeah, because it was an interesting article on emotions. So the, the lobster thing continues, sorry. Yes. That's what happened. Remember, the lobster thing was about... Um, not about lobsters not being able to have the receptors for pain and um, the, the the death thing so uh, gosh come on um, the CO2 so people without an amygdala that's what it was right so people that lack an amygdala you want to say something yeah this all this this was the day that I went dark I just sent you loads of stuff. You sent me loads of stuff because I, I didn't read my, any of my messages on that day. I just kind of didn't. So you didn't read this bit. This is what you're saying. I read it afterwards. I read it. Okay. So that's why I'm not. Fresher. So um, yeah, there's people either that have their amygdala removed. Right. So the middle, uh, the amygdala is the pain part of the brain. And emotion. The, it's the, the first part sorry, of the brain that develops, with, actually. With the motion, right? So but it, we don't have it in, in lower order animals, such yep. as anthropods, right? Kay. Exoskeleton insects yep. and, and lobsters. <laughs> um, so that's just how I got into lobster things. So they don't have an amygdala. Right. And the reason I was like, well, let's go on to them, because I was thinking of an animal yep. that would have a, a lower order brain yep. without amygdala, because obviously they move away from things that are going to kill them. That's it. We were talking about the moving towards and moving away from, and the idea that it was um, aggressive, fear aggression. That's right. That you could say that they were scared, and therefore they attack something. And where does that come from if they don't have an amygdala? Yeah. So, and the reason I got onto this was because I was looking at people who don't have an amygdala, either being born without or being surgically removed. Yeah. And we have two, I think. There's one on each side of the brain, which lobe or something. All right? Something like that. I think there's a left and a right one. One at the base, anyway. So, um, but... So they don't have an experience of fear. They can't explain to you what fear feels like. Yeah. However, when they were um, put, given CO2 to breathe, they went into a fear like panic. Right. And to the, they remembered it. They didn't want to do it again. Right. And they could explain to you. But, yeah, they, they still don't have... So they're trying to figure out that, like, there must be some yeah, other yeah. Uh, function of, of how that... And I was thinking about animals that have an amygdala anyway and went on to Google lobsters because, obviously, if, it's, if there's a heat vent or, um, you know, some gaseous vent coming out, they're going to avoid things like that. They're going to avoid things that are going to cause them damage. Yeah, they absolutely would, you know. They, they As a very... Like, for any animal on Earth, yeah. we're going to avoid things... They would avoid, they would hide, they would stay protected, they would going to go away from it's a survival yeah. mechanism right yeah so it's not you're not going to need an amygdala to function yeah so there must be a different part of so the if brain fear doesn't come from the amygdala the emotion part of the brain where does fear come from that's how we got onto that well subject. and also is it different types then there's a survival fear and there's the higher level fear and is it the higher level fear or, or i say fear but the higher level response to emotion that gives us the things like ptsd and our um effed up emotion that we have as humans so we see things in terms of well, trauma-based, trauma is an overwhelmed thing. It's, it's a different thing again. So PTSD trauma is a different... It's a, it's dogs a, have an amygdala, by the way. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that People means... People often that argue about dogs being able to have PTSD uh, or a trauma response. We've yeah. talked about this before. Yeah, and I'm not sure the amygdala is critical to trauma response. Well, kind of is. Well, it can't be if you can have... So trauma is creative... <laughs> 
<laughs> here we go again. Coughing. Sorry, everybody, when I keep co randomly coughing. Um, trauma is created by an, a level of overwhelm that it does not compute. It's I cannot so file that this that in my brain. Level, yes. You're not going to get a lobs so that's going. I can't live anymore. No, it's got to be high. So, so um, which is why the higher level, uh, lower level animals can't have it because it's a. Uh, this happened and my brain can't learn from it, make sense of it, and use it in the future. Right. So, um, dog could get its leg trapped in the door and go. I don't want to go through the door I've got again. PTSD about that. <laughs> I didn't even. I didn't even relate it to you. You just told everybody it was related to you. I, 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 I didn't go there. Leg in the door. And she made a very loud noise. In the whole Starbucks. I was already in Starbucks. We were all listening. It's like, what the fuck happened? Sorry, excuse my language. Happened to that dog. Um, but you know, so but but she'll come in Starbucks again. But she'll also learn to be a bit more cautious and maybe dash through the door a little quicker, right? So that's a learn. She could learn from it. Speaking of demons. It was. It, it hurt. It was. You could call it a traumatic experience. But she could learn from it and make a connection and do something different in response to it. Trauma happens when you can't learn from it because it's too overwhelming. Either your brain's not developed to the capacity to learn something or the event hasn't got anything tangible to learn from. So then you just have to go, I'll just watch out for everything. It, you, it, it switches your brain into a hypervigilant state. So in order to be able to have that kind of state, you've got to be able to have the capacity to learn from something and adjust your behavior beyond condition response beyond repetition based sure condition response don't have amygdalas and they're they seem to be super, they're really super intelligent yeah. super good at learning about how to survive and, and not necessarily passed on but does that mean they can have trauma they can learn right i think trauma is really human based but i think it's it the way so. i see trauma no, I, I, me too as a trauma therapist that's kind of the way i see it but it's it's we not overthink I, it's it's not being able to think actually. do you know what frederick nietzsche has to say about this Lots. The invention of I, we start to think about us as, as an individual. I, I actually Rude. think it's the opposite. Right. I think it's the fact that we couldn't make sense of something that causes it to be traumatic. Yeah, I think it's, uh, what I mean by I is like, we start to think about everything from my perspective. It's all mm -hmm. about me. So it's a very... Like, sense of self. Yeah. So, so know, dogs not, have a sense of self. It's not, I can't give you trauma. Sorry, that doesn't make sense. I can't make you feel trauma. No. I can put you in a traumatic situation. Well, like and that wouldn't necessarily be traumatic. You can put me in a situation, but it's only me that decides whether it's traumatic to my brain. Yes. So we could, you know, 100 people could be in the same situation that everybody might think was traumatic, but so only one of them might be traumatised. I guess it's the disconnect between subconscious and the eye, or idea, and, and it's Freud that came up with ideas. Yeah. yeah, Freud's a nutter. I think most of them are nutters, to be honest. They are, they've got, they've got good ideas, but Not A lot of them lack practical application. And then nowadays we've got to bring it forward, right? We've got so much more knowledge now. We should really kind of go yeah, look keep, at it from a fresh perspective. Keep messing them. But yeah, so so do dogs have a sense of self? We had this talk. Okay. So I'm so linking... definitely my dogs can see themselves in the mirror because they look at me. They look in the mirror and they look at me. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking the, the link that we've... <laughs> I'm looking at lobster amygdala and the first thing that comes up on Google is lobster thermidor, lobster base, lobster pot, <laughs> lobster tails, lobster ribs, <laughs> lobster roll. <laughs> it looks like nobody's looked up on lobster amygdala for a while. Funny that. So, so we're talking about... With the serotonin conversation, we're talking about the roles that the, the humans play 
in the way a dog processes stuff and the way a dog perceives themselves in their environment. It's even lobster, it was pretty octopus, wasn't it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and one of the things that is causing you lots of frustration is that the humans don't seem to be seeing the dog behaviour. Yes. And so we were talking about the anthropomorphizing of dogs and seeing them as little people and not seeing them as animals and the fact that, you know, that's kind of the point of having a dog is to have that kind of companion, that friend and it, it's a fine line, isn't it? To see it as a person, as a, a personality where each is an individual, you know, your, your Daxies have all got their own little personalities. I was watching um, this thing just on the background yesterday, I got caught up in it. Um, it was autistic, like, that, like dating thing that they mm. did. It's like, yes. I don't forget what it's called, but it was autistic yep. people, and it's fascinating to watch. Um, and they were high level autism and Asperger's, okay. but there was something missing from behind. It was almost, that sounds really terrible, robotic. Um, yeah. Something, something missing. Yeah. That emotional sort of. Um, and yeah, I find it fascinating because I sometimes see that in dogs. I kind of see them as there's something missing that's like the human link that everybody else seems to see that I don't. Yeah. And then everybody else is seeing more the human side of it and not the dog side of it. I've had a lot of dogs, like a lot of dogs. And some I've had for a long time, like my colleague that went away over lockdown to, to help an older lady that was widowed. She's 12 years old and she's, she'd been born in my hands, so she's only ever known me. It took her about six months to transfer that entire behaviour set that she's got to her new person. Yeah. So when, if I was, do you remember Nishi? We went to a few schools with her, Lily um, Gowdy, and everyone was like, she's so good with kids. She wasn't. She didn't care less about the kids. She was waiting on her release command because she knew right. that she'd get to run really fast or get the toy or whatever. Um, and she, everything would disappear. It was just you and her. She had eyes for nobody else. That completely transferred to that new person. So when you've seen that a lot, you start to see dogs not as people see them. Do you know yes. what I mean? Because no, it's, it's very much present in the moment, we've got that connection, but that connection can yep. just be gone. Yep. So it's really more about us, you know, it is. thinking about. It is. And if people knew that, that we're struggling with putting dog down for problems or rehoming, you know, whatever it is, they would, um, they wouldn't be so emotional about it. They'd be more practical. I think that's probably why I'm more practical than I am, just because of what I've seen. Yes. And you can't transfer that to the people who come along for help. Because each one of them is individual. Each one of them has an individual dog. So there's no way that they can ever see it in the way you see it. But what they get from you is the perspective to be able to step back from it when they are seeing behaviours that are a problem. So they are able, they are learning to separate out the behaviour from the identity by talking to you and observing, right? So the power in seeing a dog they think they know really well behave differently in a short space of time. That's quite an eye-opener for most people. It's huge, isn't it, when you think something's the way it is and then it gets... Because they will tell you, right? The, the, I'll, I can't put my muzzle on my dog, my dog growls at all men, we, we don't go near it if it does this, and then ten minutes later 
there's a guy sticking a muzzle on a dog and they're like oh we were wrong then yeah but while it could get away with it, it it did like kids will get away with anything you let them get away with and sometimes that can be quite upsetting because you want to believe that your dog is special and your relationship is unique and sometimes it can be oh that's great we can do something about it now but you can't you can't control that either that's that's dependent on the individual that comes to you so um just for my trainees that are listening because i know they all like to listen to the podcast um so the serotonin is our the way that the animal is in the group so they're not living independently from humans they're living with so we have an influence yeah so the more resources they have control over, the more likely their serotonin is higher. Right. Which then has a, a function of display of managing to keep those resources. Yes. Yeah. Which would include sexual, territorial, blah, blah, blah. So when we see the dog come down in, in behavior, and so I'm thinking of the Malays. Yeah. And they come down in behavior and they seem calmer, um, that's probably reduction in serotonin. So how do you reduce serotonin? how you know your, your trainees or, or anybody else without having a another dog that is of the equivalent status to kind of mirror how do you reduce serotonin if that's the context that's how it works um so by by remembering that it's not just about the dogs it's about we are part of the system so we are the monkeys right right that's not a how that's a we are part of the system. We need to take control, so, yeah. control of resources for ourselves. Yeah. So the more that we control boundaries. Yeah. Without having the the sort of um, opposite effect of you will do nothing, you will sit there, I will not think. Yeah. Nothing. So it's not it's not constraints and punishment. It's boundaries. Yeah. Which is a different thing. Which is it's not free for all. It's so not what you tell me. One of the rescues that I work with have um, sent me quite a few um, reports from behaviourists. So these are either um, veterinary approved or clinical behaviourists. So a veterinary clinical behaviourist is a rare anomaly because it's seven years to become a vet plus another four to become a behaviourist. So okay. there there's like a hundred of them in the world, right? Um, and something that's a common theme just now, which is absolutely heartbreaking, is its pain. So if you give me this list of complaints, it seems to be pain. Right. And she told me about one that she was reading yesterday, and it seems to be that they went out to this uh, aggressive dog, or a dog that was behaving in an aggressive manner, and they touched it, and the dog turned around and, and was going to go for them, and they said, oh, I didn't like that, that must be pain-related. Now, they could have touched that dog anywhere in the body and maybe got the same response. Right. And if you wanted to say it was pain-related, you'd have to touch that over and over, and mm-hmm. you'd have to go, there's a consistency there, and it doesn't happen when you touch here or here, yep. just there. Yep. Right? But instead, there was one touch, and it was, this is all written in a report, the dog um, wasn't comfortable enough for me to continue, so it must be pain-related. Right. And so we're seeing this over and over, and the owners are spending hundreds, this is £500 session to, to learn that it might be pain. Right. And then they spend money on MRIs and x-rays to see where the pain is. Yep. And then they put them on pain relief for a few months, and all of this takes time. Yeah, yeah. And many of the owners are figuring out for themselves, she said, that it's nonsense. It's, yeah. You know, I think that it's a potential that there's pain related, but it's much more likely that it's a confusion between species. Yep. I'm living with a different species that I'm not treating 
yeah, um, yeah. As, as it should be treated and therefore I'm getting a behavioural problem as an outcome. So I'm wondering how many dogs are getting put down or dumped because it's um, we've been told it's pain related, we can't find any pain problem and no one's actually helped them with the fact that their boundaries missing. Yeah. And one of these dogs, in fact a few of them, but one of them in particular I'm thinking of came to me and I didn't know this at the time, I didn't read the report until after. Yep. And um, he's, you know, directly, um, his, his responses are directly linked to here's some boundaries, don't do that. And the dog goes, oh, okay, cool. And yep. no worries, he got pain. So I didn't know about the pain thing until I yep. read the report and went, where's the pain then? Yeah, if he's yeah. been responding to behavioral uh, yep, changes yep. And, and management, where's the pain? So yeah, we're, we're getting into this this scary system of... Um, and it, it's, it's interesting to, to understand it, isn't it? Because, um, you know, I've seen recently uh, uh, there was one particular dog on the walk that um, was very subdued didn't really do the doggy stuff even though it had been plenty of walks didn't do the doggy stuff of sniffing and chasing other dogs and stuff and then it it went on that um, pain relief stuff and the dog totally changed it went off running and playing and you're thinking of Annie yeah, <coughs> yeah. I was amazing the, the difference the very first session I saw Annie was um, down at Wonderwood and I touched her and she squealed at her neck Right. touched her all over and went back to her neck and she squealed again at her neck yeah. and I suggested that they, she went to my uh, shiatsu teacher and just get a, a session and, and find out you know, a bit more um, what was going on there so there's every so often you'll come across dogs that you just get a feeling that this isn't behavioural this is an uncomfort or discomfort there right um, but that's not the majority of the cases no, no I, I get that and, and I, I've seen you teach people how to in my mind that it could be pain yeah. don't get me wrong uh, well, it's interesting to but know what to pain can do. Absolutely. And we it, have to you know, you do show you do show people how to see when there's a pain response or to, to do a, a check for stuff like that when they come on the walk. You quite often kind of show them how to feel down the spine and look at look at the reaction that the dog is when you get to that bit. It, it, it was just really interesting for me to see the um, the difference in the whole demeanour of a dog when the pain subsides. And it's hard with a dog because they can't say, I'm in pain and I'm hurting. Well, it's even worse for animals because they, we can go around and, and hobble and no one's going to go, ha, you're weak, I'm going to eat you. Yeah. Whereas in the animal kingdom, it's absolutely yeah, exactly. survival mode to hide any pain and discomfort. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, I can see why a pattern would have formed in people who aren't really thinking about it to just label it as pain. But if you're not speaking dog, if you're not reading your dog behaviour, every case is unique right you, you, you judge each case on the full picture not just one's assumption yes. and I think that's what happens you get trends in everything and I think you get trends in these things and, and you get people who set themselves up can make a fortune and just go and say these are, these are qualified yeah. lots of letters after their name and takes the, the onus off of um, everyone when it's pain because it's not the owner's fault and the behaviourist you know can spend a lot of time yeah yeah but can you know, we, can we call this episode Lobster Plot? Okay, that's fine. You can send me the it's notes. Funny. It's fine. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I need to get a picture of a lobster, probably. Um, I think it's really interesting, looping back almost to where we started with this conversation about um, science versus hands-on. Okay. You in know, the trenches. Is that what you mean? In the trenches, yes, with your accents again, of those what who are in the trenches. But, you know, this, this idea that I think you and I are both the same in our worlds where 
we're really fascinated by the meaning behind things when we have inter interactions with specific cases maybe something we do works really well we'll go off and we'll study it and we'll try and work out why and we'll try and work out other examples of it and then we'll integrate that into our approach and we'll maybe adapt what we do right so that serotonin thing is going to going to be integrated i know it's going to be integrated with you over the next few weeks as you kind of start studying that and looking at that and considering well it's that. blown my mind because i'm like I'm thinking these dogs need serotonin, but actually now I'm thinking they don't. Yes. They, they've got too much. Yeah, and that's that's and how do you how do you affect serotonin? What we need is a, a control that we can um, put on SSRIs to see if it's regulated enough to bring it down, or because some people just can't do it, they just won't take control of resources, you know. Yeah. And and I've, I mean, I've got my mind. You're always like I'm talking about the older couple that came for a while that. Um, trying to find a polite way for them not to come anymore because they weren't changing what they were doing at home and you know you're going to plateau and I'm going to feel really frustrated yeah. especially when I've had your dog for a bit yeah. and I know that your dog can be a lot better without you yeah. that sucks right yeah. you've got to do the changes and if you're not going to do them then don't come back you know yeah exactly and, and so um, you know you have the academic who will refer to papers and will tell you well that is true or that isn't true because there's this paper and that paper and that paper I wonder what Trevor will make of this we should get Trevor on <laughs> Trevor will you come on does he listen to these yeah he probably does yeah. does he yeah. Trevor we need you to come back and talk about serotonin um, <laughs> but then you have the kind of the apprentices you know the people who've done the grind and, and worked from the bottom up and just worked with dogs and, and done that kind of and, and grown the experience that way and um, and then you've got the kind of middle ground, which is that ability to kind of go, well, here's the science, but what does it mean in practice, and how can I use it? What's, you know, how do I use that? What what can I do with that? And and I think you need both, you know, and it, it's important. But it's also fascinating because then everybody becomes an experiment. <laughs> Everything becomes an experiment. But as you say, it's like these are PhD subjects, right? Or like, how many PhD subjects have we talked about on these podcasts? That'd be really interesting to study. That'd be really. I mean, I'd love to study the, the way I deal with trauma. I'd love to know. I've got my theories about the way the brain works, but you know, I don't have FR, fMRI scanning ability or the ability to interpret it to see. I'd love well, to know. You know, I put this um, post out, and I was right, thinking to myself afterwards. There's um, there's the sinister side of sinister side of behaviorism as well, which. Um, is that when you get too deep into things? So my post I'm talking about is the um, one on my personal page that was about dog training and how we're all getting a bit too much into behaviorism. And that's that's my job. That's the behaviorist job to ask the questions, right? Yeah. But a full-blown behavioral consultation takes hours because you've yep. got to get a whole picture of what's going on. And most of the time there's just basic training missing so if we're going to start with that let's just start with that let's just start with the good handling skills of the person teaching them some discipline never mind the dog right but the other side of that is that the more you learn about behaviorism and you'll get this as well from the psychology side of, 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 of the human side sorry is that we can go too deep down the rabbit hole yes and we can end up just accepting that we understand why things are the way they are so almost like a hey sirrah sirrah yeah. you know like well, we understand why that's happening. And so I wonder if behaviorists understand so much that they kind of have an acceptance of, well, you've done that, that's now where we're at, and therefore let's just take the stress off of the dog and drug it. Yeah. It's not accepting for me, but I can maybe, I can maybe can sympathize and it, understand. It would be a lot easier for you, right? <laughs> it would take out all the, all the things that cause the stress, which yeah. is, you know, and 
I think that's why um, the idea of going to see a hypnotist is so, or a hypnotherapist that does traditional hypnosis-based hypnotherapy, is so appealing. Because you go somewhere, they effectively wave a magic wand while you're knocked out and in a trance state, and they fix it. It's nothing to do with you. And you just get sent away, fixed. Whereas you come and see me and I say, you need, you need to do this in between the sessions. Not homework in the sense that I need you to cognitively do stuff. I need to be like curious. I need you to be questioning. I need you to be noticing. I need you to be writing out stuff that's happening. I need you to be messaging me if you've got questions. I need you to be engaged in your own process of change. As opposed to, I'm going to wave my little magic wand, do stuff to your head and say, off you go, go live your life now and see, see how different it is. But it's really appealing. <laughs> Who wouldn't? It's like hard work. So you're kind of going, Dawn, how do I how do I communicate with these owners? How do I get through to them? Well, if you just drug their dogs, you wouldn't have to worry about that stuff, right? But you're you're taking the, the hard line, you're taking the, the hardest path, which is I'm gonna work with the humans and the dogs and I'm gonna get it consistent enough that the behaviour changes. That's pretty much the hardest route you could possibly take to do that. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, the the dogs that we're seeing, there has to be an equilibrium, there has to be a balance, and the environment creates that, and yeah. we're, we're part of the environment. Yep. And so one of the reasons I got you on board was to help the owners see how much they're responsible and rather than just go I'm getting my dog trained yes they're more likely to come along to get themselves trained about dogs yes. right which is why when we talked about our, our certification program for the dog owners who've been on the walks we said you know you might be given a different dog during that day we need to do that actually we do need to do that but you know we, we might give you a different dog so we're testing how you work with dogs what your handling skills are like not how well trained your personal dog is and that's why some people take offense when you say would you like to come on a walk without your dog and they're like why it's my dog that's got a problem and then they'll tell you they've got like three other dogs and they're fine and and you'll be like yeah but (laughs) you know so it's it's the ability to see the dog as a dog but it's, it's just that it really is a fine balance, you know, it's a fine balance between it's a companion, it's your friend, it's it's a, a personality in your house, it's if you've got multiple dogs they're all different, you know, you've had previous dogs they're all different, it, it's something really special to have a really close bond with, but it's still an animal that lives in your home that needs treating like an animal. So talking about resilience, there's a study done um, by Lincoln University about resilience in dogs, they were asking a questionnaire, they're asking the owners about it. Right. Um, so some of the questions were like, my dog does not get upset easily, my dog tries his hardest even when the task is difficult. What? Interesting questions. Um, if another dog has a re- negative reaction to something, my dog is likely to become upset too. Um, if my dog were to have a bad experience, it w- she would forget about it quickly. Wow. Those are interesting questions. I would regard my dog to be adaptable to any situation. I believe my dog to be anxious and easily worried by things. My dog will persevere even when they do not succeed in something straight away. What do you think about these questions? 
think they've got nothing to do with dogs. I believe my dog to be a resilient individual who can adapt to adversity or change. Well, I think the important part is I believe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what are you if something unexpected happened in my life and circumstances were to change, I know my dog could cope. Yeah. These are crazy questions. It's really human, isn't it? Yeah, those are really... Like, how would but you also, even know? I quite like that last question, because I think that the way I raise my dogs is so that if something happens to me, anybody could take them. Yes, but that's a totally different thing. That's a realistic view of the world that says my dog should not be only attached to me. So you think I've got a realistic view of the world? In that, in that sense. <laughs> in that sense. But <laughs> do you think that other, other people when they raise a puppy, don't have a Yeah, I, I think, well, I think that other people or? would say, um, my puppy's really, my dog's really strongly bonded with me, and if they went to live somewhere else, they wouldn't be as happy. Okay. And you're... But do you think that, that they would want that, though? That's such an interesting No, question. they wouldn't. They'd hate their dog to be happy somewhere else. That's what I mean, yeah. I mean, like, they're upset when they leave them on holiday with me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, are they upset because they're thinking the dog's going to have a better time with me? Are they upset? Because it can't be I'm leaving my dog in this incapable person's hands. No, it's um, that they, they, they want it. their dog to miss them. And they feel they're letting their dog down by abandoning them so by going on holiday. So what is wrong with me that I can give Toosie or any of my dogs to anybody and go, this is a good experience for them? Well, that's two questions. What is wrong with me and... <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you just you understand dogs. You understand dog behaviour. You see them as dogs, not just like other people. So, yeah, you... The way I think, I think is normal. Yes, it's not. I know, but at what point do people start to go... When they become (laughs) master dog behaviourists. I'm not trying to say I'm super good. I'm trying to say No, I'm not saying you're super good either. Why is... I am. Why is... um, why is that lacking? Like, surely with your children, you want them to go and experience things so that they can become an all-round balanced person. Yeah, but and you also want them to miss you. Really? Yeah. Why is that important? Because you, your sense of self-worth and your sense That's of self crazy. is linked to these things. No. No, I, you know, I'm, I'm weird as well. So, you know, I want my child to be happy without me having to be involved in making them happy. I, I watch TV programs and think that people over-dramatise when people cheat. Right. So it's like, oh my God, he slept with he slept with somebody. I mean, my whole life is going to be ruined now. I quite like the French way of like it's expected. Yes. You're not going to ruin your whole life over it. But I think we would dramatise things. So then I watch some things like a real life documentary things, and their reactions are not they're exactly the same as they are in the movies. They're like they flip out and they like have this meltdown yeah. over somebody cheating on them, and I I struggle. Cheating is an interesting one. Um, and I'm, I'm aware of the time on the podcast. Is this a new podcast? It is a oh new podcast. <laughs> I'm on 70 again. It's supposed to be a half hour one. I know. That's sake, Dawn. I've got things to do. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> thank you once again for listening to our podcast. The Lobster Plot. The Lobster Plot. That was a great time. Okay, that's fine. <laughs>